I'm going to be speaking about Thanksgiving uh, this morning, um, but not because I planned that. Those of you who know me know that that would require far more foresight than I happen to possess. Uh, it just turns out that the passage that we're dealing with this morning is on, on giving thanks, as well as on singing certain kinds of, of uh, music. So we'll continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not sure what verse they put in the bulletin. But it's probably in this vicinity. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to start, I'm going to reread portions of uh, the text that I preached on the last, last week and two weeks before that and three weeks before that. Be very careful, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray, God, that your word would have power and have an anointing to change us, which my words certainly do not have, Lord. We pray, God, that your word, Lord God, your spirit would infuse what I'm going to say and make it your stuff and then make it change us, Lord, because we want to be your kingdom people. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. But I want to start by just sharing with you a word about what bothers me about the passage that we're going to be preaching on this morning. Uh, I, I want to concentrate on, on verses, uh, on verses eight, uh, 19 and 20, which talk about speaking to one another in spiritual songs and psalms and hymns, and which talk about giving thanks. And here's what kind of what bothers me about the passage. Throughout this section that we've been preaching off this last month, it's a pretty important section, but Paul's been building on Every verse is built upon the previous verse, and it's made, made the previous verse more specific, and in some ways, it's made the previous verse more profound. Paul starts by reminding us that we are children of light, we're no longer children of darkness. That means that we now have a clue as to what life's about. It's not a senseless affair, like we maybe thought it was. It rather has a purpose, it has a direction. And so Paul says in verse 15, take care how you live, be very careful how you live. Don't live as the heathen live because you, you know what life's about. You know there's a purpose to it, so live with intentionality. Live with purpose. Live with a life script. Don't just meander through life. And so in verse 16 he says, Don't squander your time because the days are short. The days are evil. Don't make the most out of every opportunity. Redeem the time. Live passionately while there's time to live. Invest time with love. Invest time with life. Knowing what you know about the purpose of life, invest every moment that you can with significance, with life, with passion, with love, and with energy. Don't live foolish, live wise. Live passionately. Don't squander your time. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, understand what the Lord's will is. Don't live according to your own will. Live according to the Lord's will. Submit yourself to the will of God. Don't make God in a, a part of your agenda. Make yourself part of God's agenda. Don't make your Christianity a footnote to everything else your life is about. Make it the center of your life, the meaning of your life. 
And then he goes on even more specific and even more profoundly to say, be filled with the Spirit. Do not come under the lordship of a, of a, of a fruit, which is what happens when you get drunk with wine. Grapes were never intended to lord over a human being, but Jesus Christ was. So don't be controlled by wine. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be God intoxicated. Be filled with Jesus Christ. Come under the influence of Jesus Christ. That's part of what the Lord's will is. That's what it is to live carefully, to pay attention to how you live. That's what it is to live wisely. And I would have been happy if I would have just stopped there. That's pretty climactic. That's pretty exciting. Now let's move on to the next thing. But he goes on for one more, for two more verses. And given the way Paul's been building up here, you know, he's, he's kind of, it's kind of a momentum thing. You kind of get a feel, can, can you get a feel of the momentum? You know, pay attention to your life, redeem the time, you know, obey the Lord's will, be filled with the Spirit, and now you expect what? Speak in tongues, or, or heal the sick, or cast out demons, or walk on water, or transform the world. Or If you're going to continue, Paul, make it even a bigger wall than you had so far. Instead, he, he gets up here and all of a sudden he goes, and sing nice songs to one another and give thanks. It's kind of like, oh. And honestly, if I wasn't committed to preaching on every verse of the Bible here, I, I'd just sort of like skip over that one and let's go on to the next exciting topic. You know, singing songs, you know, be thankful, be happy, don't worry, be happy. And it sounds, in the light of what's been going on, kind of mundane. It doesn't, I, Monday I told my team, like, I don't want to preach here. It's like, you know, okay, there, do it. Say songs to one another. You know, I, I don't know, what, what am I going to say here? It just seemed kind of empty. Two points about this, even before we get talking about it. One is, the verse I think we're going to see shortly is not at all mundane. But secondly, even it's, appearance of being sort of mundane and trivial in the light of what it's trying to articulate. Paul's trying to say, this is what it is to be filled with the Spirit. You sing songs to one another, and you give thanks. There's a point in that, an important point in that. And the point is this. It's not the eureka experiences that really determine the quality of your life, that really determine being filled with the Spirit. Now, there are eureka experiences. There are high points and low points. You need some of those. You need baptisms of the Holy Spirit. You need breakthrough times, times when you surrender, times when you're healed, times when you just shift gears. We talked about that last week. But when you come down from the mountaintop, Christianity is about day-to-day stuff, important day-to-day stuff. It's about stuff like being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, miracles, tongues, gifts of the Spirit, word of knowledge, great. But it's about paying attention, being careful how you live, paying attention to what kind of songs you listen to. Pay attention to what kind of attitude you have on Monday morning in the office with all those ordinary people you work with, you know, that crowd. It's about that kind of stuff. And in a lot of ways, learning how to live successfully as a believer is a lot like learning how to live successfully as a married person. And here I'm going to appeal to all the married people. Someone said that if you want to really have a good marriage, learn how to major in the minors and minor in the majors. And I think that's a pretty profound thing to say. It's not the high points and the low points that usually determine the quality of a marriage. It's not those wonderful honeymoon experiences, both of them, and it's not the real low experiences uh, that really determine the quality of a marriage. It's what goes on, it's the minor points that really go on in between that determine the quality of a marriage. 
Every married person here should be saying amen to this. You know it's true, isn't it? It's true. It's, it, it's, it's, it's remembering to put the toilet seat down. Those things, those things really add up after a while. And, and it's remembering to put the, the, the top on the toothpaste and the squeeze from the bottom up. And it's the little gestures. It's the little words. It's the little caresses. It's the I love you's that are unexpected. It's the cards. It's a little bit of flowers. It's an unexpected hug. It's being kind to one another. It's, it's, it's settling in a compassionate way the little arguments when all is said and done, the quality of a marriage is, is more the result of adding up all those little incidental things than it is the high points or the low points. And so it is in life. So it is in life. Ultimately, what it means to walk in the Spirit is more a matter of the kind of little decisions you make on a day-by-day basis, the kind of attitude you have on a day-by-day basis, more a matter of that than it is a matter of the high points and the low points. As important and as great as the mountaintop experiences are, and I believe we should be open to them, what really matters is the day-by-day stuff. You ever see a Monet painting? They had a Monet exp- uh, exhibition down in Chicago here uh, this last week. And um, Monet is, is like one of my favorite French Impressionists. Uh, I feel so cultured just talking like this. You all think I want you know, okay, I borrowed Teresa's notes, you know. I, but uh, um, Monet, the thing that makes this painting is great, French Impressionist uh, artist, is that his, his paintings are composed, this is a lot like life, by all these little tiny strokes. You look at his paintings, it's a million little tiny strokes. And each one of them has a little kind of Monet, Monet flair to it. He had a particular way of making these things. And the result is this incredible montage. And when you step back, it gives his paintings a kind of ethereal uh, quality. You know what I'm talking about. Very, a, a real kind of weird mood. A dreamy. Yes, that's, a, that's the word. How you say dreamy? Uh, I, <laughs> Um, I, I try to be cultured here. But that's kind of like life. It's the little decisions. It's the attention to the detail. When Paul says, be careful how you live, he's not seeing, saying, seek out the great revivals that are going on in Canada or Texas or Kansas or Europe or whatever. Find the wow experiences. Find the dynamite things. He's saying, pay attention on a moment-by-moment basis how you live. Pay attention to how you use your time. Pay attention, he's going to say here, to little things like the songs you sing, the songs you hear, and the attitude you have on a moment-by-moment basis. It's the little things that end up being the big things because those are the things that transform your life, that, cha- that determine the kind of character you are in the long haul. I want to talk about two of those that Paul thought were very important, so important that he climaxes this whole section by mentioning them. One is singing songs, and the other one is giving thanks. And I don't think that they're at all mundane, though they sound like it. Let's talk about them. First of all, music. Paul says, be careful how you live. Sing spiritual songs to one another. Sing hymns. Note there the difference between hymns and spiritual songs. That's why it's good to have a balance, huh? Right, balance. We had two hymns today. Okay, there. Uh, but no, sing that kind of stuff. Listen to spiritual music. Sing spiritual music. Make melodies unto the Lord. Let me first say this I'm, I, about what Paul is not saying here. And i got to say this because I... Have a buzzer about this verse. Here's one thing I know about Woodland Hills is that we got a lot of people with a lot of buzzers about a lot of verses. Because you come out of context where they have extreme teachings and verses were used as sort of billy clubs to beat you up. Last week I had a person very sincere come up after the service when I was talking about being sold out and surrendered and abandoned to the Lord. And what he heard was I was telling people that they need to be slain in the Spirit. Which is weird because I wasn't thinking about that at all. 
But he comes from a context where the spiritual criteria for whether or not you're really abandoned is whether or not you, you know, you've seen this, where you faint in the spirit. And I'm not against that happening. If it happens, it happens. But it's not a criteria for anything. But that's what they heard. Other people, I talk about baptism in the spirit, and immediately they get kind of worried. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, because particular verses have, have been given particular meanings to you that have not been friendly. What we're about is trying to make the Bible user-friendly. Trying to make it so, you know what, it's, it's, you don't have to be afraid of this thing anymore. But it happens when I get to preaching sometimes that I'll come to a verse that in your background, all of a sudden, and I can tell, I look out here and people start, you know, flinching. Like, no, no, I don't, please. Well, this verse, for me, was used like this. I got saved and I had to give away all of my rock albums. <laughs> I was supposed to burn them and I couldn't bring myself to do it. You know, I, 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 Grand Funk Railroad, how can I possibly burn that? I gave them all away to my carnal brother. Uh, <laughs> And that way, if he was listening to them, he was sinning, not me. <laughs> this is great. Okay, the tricks we play. But it's like, verses like this were used to say this. Any kind of music, you know, that has got rhythm in it. It's against nature. They used to argue this way, you know, the backbeat. And for a drummer, this does not land well. But that backbeat, you know, it, it, it makes you feel sexual. And, it, you know, they had these weird statistics they'd quote. You know that 75% of all people who were fornicating last year were listening to the Rolling Stones. And weird stuff like that. Like, I don't know how they found that stuff out. They go around, you know, when you fornicate, who do you listen to? I, but they had all these statistics in that, you know, against rock music, they had big rock-burning kind of escapades. You know the stuff. And anything with rhythm is wrong. And anything that's secular is wrong. We were basically told that the only kind of music you could listen to was, was spiritual music. And so what it ends up doing is you turn into a little hypocrite because, you're, you know, as soon as you get on the road, I'm not kidding, you've been through the paranoia. Some of you people know the background you come from. You get this paranoia where you, you sneak to KQ. I, this, is, this is honest truth. Driving the University of Minnesota one day, I was listening to KQ, you know, really rocking out, feeling a little bit guilty for it, and a policeman pulls up alongside of me. Now, i got to think about policemen anyways. But for a moment, I thought I was going to get pulled over for listening to rock music. <laughs> I did. That's how, that's how screwed up it get. Okay, <laughs> I'm so damaged. <laughs> no wonder you guys relate to me so well. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm not talking about coming against every kind of music. The verse does not say to only sing spiritual songs. There's nothing in the Bible that says that music just for music's sake is a bad thing. There's nothing in the Bible, certainly nothing in the Bible, that says that dancing is a bad thing, that rhythm is a bad thing. I mean, who gave us that? I mean, we're made in the image of God. It's got to come from somewhere. God knows how to snap his fingers and tap his feet. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to. I'm not talking about that. At the same time, I can't use the fact that this was used as a billy club on me prevent me from hearing what the verse is saying. And what the verse clearly is saying is this. The kind of mu music you listen to, that, that you surround yourself with, and that you sing in the privacy of your own heart, has something to do with walking, being filled with the Spirit. Uh, or you might put it a different way, that there's a kind of music that you can sing, and a kind of music that you can hear, that is more conducive to walking in the Spirit, and there's a kind of music that you can listen to and sing, that is less conducive to walking in the Spirit. Hold on to that thought for a second now. Ancient people did not ever see music as being a morally neutral thing. Just, that, that was a foreign concept to them. Nor did they see it primarily as being a, a, for entertainment. They saw that music was always to serve a purpose. Do you know, I just did a little reading this week. There's a whole thing out there called music therapy. Have you heard about this? Music therapy, some of you know it. Music psychology, even music behavioral therapy. That's a fascinating thing. I feel like Cliff Clavin going into it too much, but, but, but just hear me out a little bit on it. 
They have found, and there's mounting scientific evidence for the last 15 years, that certain types of music create certain kind of emotions, they create certain kind of behaviors, or at least propensity, a propensity towards certain kind of behaviors. They affect who you are. And they found that, I, even in some, of these, in some of these articles that I read, they even will list certain songs that they've experimented with that are good for calming hostility, good for calming anxiety or worry, good for bringing a person out of chronic fatigue or depression or whatever. They've even done some studies that show that, listened to over a prolonged period of time, some kinds of music are conducive to helping people, especially criminals, get out of violent behavior. Whereas others are more conducive to getting people to act more violently. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting kind of a, a, a field of study. And you know this from experience. You know, you hear a certain song, this happens to you, doesn't it? Where you hear a song and all of a sudden you're in a certain kind of a mood. Killing me softly with his song. Boom. I'm all of a sudden back there in the North St. Paul skating rink. And, and for some reason that's, and there's a whole mood that surrounds that whole thing. Or this last week with the Beatles anthology. Strawberry Feels Forever and Lucy with a Sky of Diamonds. Yuck! It's like, I got a period of my life that I just don't want to re-enter. But that music evokes that kind of mood. What they found, to really get Cliff Clavin on you here, but the non-dominant side of your brain speaks the language of music probably more effectively than it speaks any other kind of language. And this is the part of your brain, it's the left side for right-handed people and the right side for left-handed people. This is the part of your brain that controls basic dispositions, that control basic outlooks, your worldview, and to a certain degree, the behavior, the, the habitual behavior that you get involved in. And music, they're finding now, is a great way of getting in and reprogramming, as it were, some of the basic fundamental attitudes and dispositions that we have. Now, here's the thing. This is no new thing for ancient people. There I go. Thank you. Um, This is... Ancient people knew this instinctively. In fact, here's a little fact for you. The word music, you know where that comes from? It literally, the word muse, you see the word muse and the word music? It literally means that which pertains to a muse. Hallelujah. A muse in the ancient world was a goddess who was believed to be in charge of inspiration, motivation, and transformation. A muse. So you have uh, Milton praying to the heavenly muse to come down and inspire him to write his, his poetry. That's what a muse was. Music, it was called music in the ancient world because they believed that it was the primary vehicle or the primary instrument that the heavenly muse would use to inspire a person towards a certain kind of action or transform a person into a certain kind of disposition. I think that's fascinating. I don't know. I feel like Cliff Clavin's sharing it with you, but it's fascinating. It was seen as being a tool. And so you have great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, Plato in the Republic and Aristotle in his book, The Poetics, they have these discourses about how to build certain kinds of character on the basis of the kind of music you listen to. And they didn't think it was the only variable or even the most important variable, but it was a a variable. Plato said, for example, that if you want to to raise up a, a strong military, start when the kids are very, very young. And this is really interesting. There's a lot of wisdom in the past. I'm inclined to think that they had a lot more wisdom about things than we do. We've got technology. They had smarts. But Plato said this. You want to raise up kids uh, to be good fighters, set them aside, have them reared by generals, have them play with military toys, fighting toys, and have them listen to military music. And he had a very clear idea what military music was. It was music that promoted a courageous, 
rowdy, as it, that wasn't the word he used, but a more militant spirit, which he thought was very, a very rhythmic, a hard pounding, a fairly loud type of music. And, and, and you, 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 you surround a kid with that when they're very, very young, teach them the lyrics to it, give them fighting lyrics, and they will be raised as fighters. He also said this, which is interesting, there ought to be some discord in there, because discord, harmony produces mellowness, discord has a propensity towards violence, and you want a little bit of violence, and people who are raised for the military. Interesting insights there. Throughout the history of Western culture, you have this idea that to form certain kinds of character, you listen to certain kinds of music. Music, music is what inspires, it's what transforms. You have some people like St. Augustine warning against using music for just entertainment value because they thought that if you do that, you're unleashing a sort of Pandora's box. You can't control it. It should always be for the purpose that you intend it to be used for. You also have, throughout the history of Western culture, this idea that's now being birthed in music therapy that to cure certain kinds of emotional and psychological and even physical illnesses, you listen to certain kinds of music. In fact, here's another little Cliff Clavin fact. The god, the ancient uh, god Apollo in ancient Greece was both the god of music and of medicine. It's interesting. And that's how closely related they saw medicine and music. Certain sorts of music, especially very harmonious, mellow music, they thought was conducive to bringing about healing in a person's life. Maybe they were on to something, I don't know. It's a totally different worldview than what we have today, where we think that the main purpose for music is entertainment, and we have this idea that music is morally neutral. But according to Scripture and according to the wisdom of the ages, that simply is not the case. In fact, throughout Christian history... It was believed that certain sorts of spirits get attached to certain kinds of music. Usually it was harmonious, godly music that was thought that, they, that could raise your soul up to the heavens. And certain sorts of discordant music that, 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 that demons tended to like. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 16th century, he said that the best way to cast a demon out of a person is to play godly music in the vicinity. Do exorcism, but do it. Your warfare is music, godly music. Sing praises to God. And he said that when you do that, the demons have to start running. Which kind of makes sense when you consider it in the light of Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 uh, and 17, you have three different cases where Saul, you maybe know the incident, where Saul, this kind of a wicked person, was overcome by this evil spirit and had David, who was later to become king, play his harp in order to drive out the evil spirit from his life. There's a connection here between the kind of spirits that hang around you and the kind of music you listen to. Now, I'm going to be the last person on the planet to come up with a censoring device, a chart or something like that, to tell you what kind of music you can and can't listen to. I'm going to be the last person in the world to come up with some kind of rule about what's the only kind of music that's appropriate or not appropriate. And parents of teenagers, I'm going to give a word of advice. Be very careful how you plow into your kid's room and apply what I'm saying here this morning. Because you can do more harm than good. And the other thing is that it's so easy to equate your taste with what is godly and their taste with what is demonic. Having said all those wonderful qualifications, we're back to this one point. And the one point is this. Apparently there is a connection between the kind of music you surround yourself with and the kind of music you sing in your heart and living filled with the Spirit. And there's nothing to suggest that music for music's sake is wrong. There's nothing to suggest anything of the sort. Nor is it to suggest that listening to a song with ungodly lyrics or something like that is going to make you go out and do an ungodly thing. 
But on the other hand, if what is in your mind is nothing but that kind of music, and if the way you're raised is surrounded by nothing but that kind of music, that certainly is one of the variables that might play into the kind of person, the kind of character that you develop. Are you following me here? And so Paul very legitimately says, use this gift that God has given to us, not just for the purpose of entertainment, nothing wrong with that, but use it for the purpose that God gave it, and the purpose is to grow your character, to develop your kind of character, to be transformed. Music you know, the, do you ever have that where lyrics get in your head and you can't get them out? They get in your head. Well, it's, it's part, the part of this is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the way, oh, do a little dance. You know, hearing that one time, yeah, you know, but, but if that gets seared into your brain, that's got to have some kind of an impact. Try this sometime. When you're going down the road and you're listening to KQ, and I'm not, I like KQ, I, you know, I, I like bopping and, but once in a while, turn it off and start singing a praise to God. Just start singing praise to the Lord. Surround yourself with that. Or, or, or if you can't sing word beans, make a joyful noise. And if you don't want to do that, surround yourself in the stereo with, with, with some godly music and see what happens. Because there is a connection, folk, between being open to the Spirit and listening to godly music. There's a lot of good, good, rowdy, godly music there. You know what I mean? Rhythms from God. But surround yourself with that. Lyrics that sear themselves into your mind, that transform your mind by being renewed, that open up your spirit to God. Fill your house with that kind of music. Watch and observe what the music therapists have been doing for 15 years now. See the difference that it makes. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. You want to know how to do that? Surround yourself with all sorts of godly music. Plato couldn't have said it any better if only he'd been a Christian. The second thing that Paul says is this. He says, and give thanks. Sorry. Give thanks. Give thanks for everything. In every situation, give thanks. Again, 30-second pause for what Paul is not saying here. Because here again, this verse has been used to, as, a, as a real convenient billy club. Paul isn't saying, I don't believe, and I don't see any verse in the Bible that says that you're supposed to pretend like you're grateful for everything that happens to you. There's a big difference here. This is an important point. Paul is not saying that whatever happens, you're supposed to feel grateful. There's nothing in the Bible that says that everything that comes down the pipe is a gift from God. A lot that comes down the pipe, we're in a war zone here, folks, and a lot that comes down the pipe, God is positively against. So you never find anything in the Bible of someone thanking God for Satan or thanking God for something that Satan does or thanking God for some catastrophe that happens to them or thanking God for something that some evil person did for them. That'd be ludicrous, and the Bible never teaches that or recommends that or gives any illustrations of that. And when believers get it in their mind, this is what happens sometimes, and it's so sad. But someone goes through some kind of catastrophic thing. They lose the kid that they were pregnant with. And they're down, and maybe they're angry, and maybe they're shooting in every direction. But along comes Sister Pollyanna Christian, who's got the Bible. And they say, well, my Bible says to rejoice in every situation. So you ought not to be sad. Wipe off that frowny face. Put on a smile. In everything, give thanks. You ought to be thanking God for that. It's like telling a little kid to say, thank you, Father, as a kid shoving a bar of soap down her throat or something. What it does is it creates deep resentment. And right when you need God the most, as your friend and as your comforter, sometimes we, put, we encourage people to push God away, saying, you sent me this, and I'm supposed to be thankful for this? No thanks, I'll do it on my own. The, what the Bible says is this. In every situation, we are to give thanks. And for everything that God has given to us, give thanks. Not everything we have, God has given to us. A lot of stuff is garbage that we brought on ourselves. We are to be thankful for that. We're to be transformed out of that. But for everything we have to be thankful for, be thankful. 
When Jesus went around and saw people that were blind and people that were maimed and people that had leprosy, he didn't say, hey, you ought to thank God for that leprosy. Why? It's taught you many great profound lessons and now you can relate to other lepers. He didn't do that. But that's exactly what a lot of Christians do. What he said is, well, let's, this doesn't look like it's from God. Let's come against it. Let's pray against it. Let's seek for healing. But what the Bible is saying is that Christians are, one, one, there's a relationship between the kind of attitude you cultivate and being filled with the Spirit, and we are to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. However bad things are, the Bible is saying, look for the things that God has given you to be thankful for. You see, there's an attitude out there that's like this. The glass is not half full, it's, it's half empty. And, and this attitude says, you know, no matter what kind of car you drive, you drive a $30,000 car, and, and you don't notice the fact that 97% of the world doesn't have what you've got. You notice the 3% above you that drive better cars, and you're resentful of that. And you don't notice the great $300,000 house that you've got. What you notice is that your neighbor's got a little bit better house, and you resent that. And you don't notice the great clothes you wear and the great food you eat and the great kids that you've got. What you do notice is when someone else has something a little bit better than what you've got, and you resent them for that, and you live life hungry, you live life always wanting more, you live life being ungrateful, These are people that are usually miserable, usually unhappy, and they are not filled with the Spirit. It is impossible to live life with that kind of an attitude, with that kind of envy, with that kind of jealousy, with that kind of covetousness, which the Bible calls being uh, uh, covetous or covetous, whatever the word is. Coveting what another person has. I don't even know that's a word. You can't live like that and be filled with the Spirit. We live in a culture... I think, it's a, I, I think capitalism is the best market thing going, but you know what? It's got a downside, and the downside is that it teaches us, it indoctrinates us, it lobotomizes us to always want more, to become little pro, programmed robots that said, I've got to have more, I've got to have more. And we're conditioned, culturally conditioned, sociologically conditioned, to always look at the person who's got a little bit more than we've got rather than looking at the 99% of people who don't have what we have. And so we're ungrateful. And Paul says that is one heck of a spirit quencher. You just snuff out the spirit with that kind of an attitude. My grandmother taught me a whole lot about how to live by living an example of a life that I never want to live. She frankly was, with one exception, the most miserable person I've ever met in my life. She was painting a little Monet painting all of her life with little particular strokes, paying great attention to it, and the strokes that she chose to always paint were negative. And she created the most negative masterpiece you could ever imagine. Line upon line, just little stroke here, stroke there. And there are people who are genetically disposed to be more optimistic, and some people who are genetically disposed to be more pessimistic, and there's room in the church for both. But you know what? Within those parameters, we've got a lot of room for choice, a lot of room for freedom, and you can't often choose what happens to you. My grandmother had a lot of negative things happen to her. Most of us do, some more than others. But what you do have control over is how you choose to respond to it. And when you respond on Monday morning, Tuesday night, Friday afternoon, every little stroke determines the kind of person you're going to be. And Paul is saying you can cultivate a personality that quenches the Spirit, or you can cultivate a personality that's filled with the Spirit. My grandmother, she she, she just came out of her mouth. People in Calcutta, people in Bangladesh, people in Central Africa who haven't had water for 16 years, they don't have anything like the problems that she's got. One person in my life I've ever met who actually claimed that she had it worse than Job. I went to a visitor in a nursing home, and I said, well, Grandma, at least you don't have what Job had. Oh, 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 no, Job never had what I had. His dentures probably fit, you know, and, and whatever. It's true. She was just a miserable, miserable person. But see, as believers, we've got to be aware of this. 
we, we have as much a propensity towards negativism as anybody else. And it's so easy to, in our culture to fall into this victimhood mentality where you think that life owes you something and you become acutely aware of your rights and how your rights are violated. You become acutely aware of who's got more than what you've got. And you think that you're supposed to get it on a silver platter. From a biblical perspective, the Bible says this, we have nothing that was not given to us. And that's got to affect the kind of attitude we cultivate in our life with every stroke, every decision we make. We have nothing that was not given to us. If you breathe one breath, that's one more breath than you would have breathed if you wouldn't. We're not created to breathe that one breath. If you live for one second or one hour or one year or a hundred years, it's all gravy. It's all a gift from God. Every heartbeat you beat, you didn't earn it. It's given to you. And every thought you think, it's been given to you. Every breath you take has been given to you. Every step I'm taking right now, it's been given to me. All the use of my hands has been given to me. My eyesight's been given to me. And there's not one reason in the world why I can take this next step and somebody else can't. Or why I can think this next thought and somebody else can't. I used to work with these, these, these retarded children. They would just spend their life just looking at their hands, you know. And in this fallen world, you know, screwy things happen. And this is one of the screwy things that happen. And all I know is that there's not one reason that anyone can find in this universe why I was born with a normal, relatively normal brain, and they weren't. I had to qualify. Why am I me and not them? Why am I born in America and not Calcutta? Why can I eat three meals a day and other people eat one meal a week? Did I earn it in some previous life? That's bosh. It's in a state of war. It's a chaos zone. And everything we've got has been given to us, and it's all grace. And it's time that we begin to look around and wake up and become thankful for what we've been given because we didn't do anything to deserve it. Let me close with just sharing you one experience I had that kind of opened my eyes up. I used to work with these men who were, who were brain injured, got in car wrecks or fell off of cliffs or whatever, and they, they got brain injured. And most of them were totally incapacitated mentally and physically. One particular man there, his name was Scott, could not walk, just totally, totally crumpled up, uh, arms were all crumpled up, head, half his head, part of his head was gone from being bashed in. He was just like this, drooled, couldn't talk. He had a lot mentally on the ball, but he could never c- communicate it. To, to talk, he had to press hard on his chest, and he'd get it one word out at a time. It'd take about a half hour to get a sentence out. At the age of 18, he was, uh, he was a state champion in the 100-meter swim, had life going for him, was a ladies' man, was just had life by the hill, but at the age of 20... Was on a motorcycle, car, didn't see a stop sign or something, ran into him, he flew, banged his head, story's over. And now he's living like this. And I was over at, at uh, the house one afternoon, I guess it was, and we were talking, and I was in a bad mood, grumpy mood that day. He wanted to go out and walk around like Phelan. He, he, he was determined that he was going to walk again, which physically speaking would never happen, but he wanted to, it gave him something to shoot for. They wanted to go around Lake Phelan, which really meant go 50 yards around Lake Phelan because it would take you about two hours or three hours to get that far. And I didn't feel like doing that, and I tried to talk him out of it. Let's go to a movie. Come on, let's do something fun. No, I want to go walking. So I went down to Lake Phelan. He has got one of these walkers, you know, where, where he, he, he just, he would, he'd go about two inches like this, and then he'd, he'd walk like this, two inches, all crumpled up, and I'd have to be supporting him the whole time. So we're down at Lake Phelan walking around. The goal of the afternoon is to get about 100 yards and come back and do 100 yards and then go home. And that would probably take two or three hours. Scott could never keep his eyes off of girls. And, and whenever a girl came by, he'd look at her and get distracted. And so his girl came rollerblading by. And Scott kind of leaned over like this, you know, and he turned around too far and he started to fall. Now, I had been 
training for a marathon. This is when I was really into running about seven years ago. I was really into running. I, I, you know, but I had gotten a big marathon. The Twin Cities Marathon was coming up. I wanted to get a PR record or whatever. And so I've been training a real lot, but I had gotten injured a couple weeks before uh, with my, a groin muscle. And I was really mad about that because it was impinging on my training and I wasn't going to be able to do as good as I wanted to do. He started to fall and I had to reach down and grab him. And, and when I caught him, I tore that, that uh, muscle again. This hot flash went up. We laid on the ground there, and he was kind of giggling because people were riding past us, and we're laying on the ground here. <laughs> but I was madder than, than perdition. I, I was really mad because I could feel this pain, and I knew it was going to be another three weeks before I, I could run again, and this is really going to dampen my time. And so I'm sitting there saying, oh, shoot, rats, and the other poetry, and just kind of mad, really mad. <laughs> and Scott kind of hits me like this, which he always did when he wanted to talk to me. So I, I, I roll over. I sit on the ground, and I, and I push down on his chest so we can talk. And he says, I'm sorry. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I realize how incredibly self-centered I had been.